Let me get back to part three. <laughs> I lost all my notes. Well, it didn't help up an hour late. Uh, there it is, part three. Okay. Welcome back. It's episode 326 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and this is typically where I talk about what's happening in bourbon news, but we've got a big surprise for you all. Everyone has always asked us for more information, and you would be amazed at the amount of bourbon news that comes out every single week. And so we said, let's go ahead and give the people what they want. And that's why we are dedicating a whole new episode every single Friday called This Week in Bourbon. So make sure you stay subscribed on whatever app you get your podcasts on because this will only be available to podcast listeners. And you'll start getting three new Bourbon Pursuit episodes in your feed every single week. Tuesday's Whiskey Quickies, Thursday's The Main Show, and now Friday's This Week in Bourbon. So welcome back to part three on our series of Is Bourbon Broken? as we continue to analyze the multi-part blog series from Bourbon and Banter. And this episode is one that many of you have been waiting for, as we evaluate the one or two variables that are completely out of our control as a consumer, and that's distribution and retail. We've challenged the system multiple times on the show before, and I don't think we're ever going to figure out the correct answer, but we always want to ask ourselves a few questions. Is the system supposed to be working in favor of the consumer, or is it working in favor of somebody else? And when we think about reward systems, how should distributors reward stores differently? And if we look into the future, we look and see what is commerce going to look like in the future, we also want to ask ourselves, should distributors and retailers be a little bit scared of what's going to be happening in the digital age? With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from some random person I met in a retail store, and they asked me a simple question and then walked off. What do I think about all the celebrity bourbon brands coming out? Well, random person, that was a great question, and I guess your wife was calling you when you had to go back to your um, car or something, but you just kind of left before I got a chance to answer you. So hopefully you hear this in this week's episode of Burn Pursuit. But, uh, so, celebrity brands are a part of popularity. You know, the celebrity brands weren't around 10 years ago, 15 years ago. There may be a little movement here and there, but it's, it's a sign of popularity, and they are essentially created by the people who manage them. They're always looking for new ways to get revenue, outside of their acting contracts or their music gigs or whatever it is that makes them a celebrity. So that's the manager's job or the agent's job is to find new sources of revenue. And so you do, you, what, what happens is, is those management companies try to find things that make sense, that uh, are good fits for their particular brands. And also, there's the method of like, what's popular? How big's our audience? What can we add to the table? And so you're seeing that right now in a lot of different places. So Peyton Manning has a bourbon. Terry Bradshaw has a bourbon. The Vampire Diaries guys has a bourbon. I mean, there's so many people who have bourbons. Now, what you have to look at here, you have to look at two things as to whether or not it is good 
for bourbon. One, are people buying it because of the liquid or are they buying it because of the celebrity? That's very, very, very important. And two, how involved is the celebrity? One of my favorite celebrity brands is uh, number nine, which is a, a partnership with Cedar Ridge and Slipknot. Clown from Slipknot does the blending. You know, he's a part of the process. And so it's really fascinating uh, to kind of talk to him because, well, he's not an expert or anything like that. He's got his, um, you know, his pulse on what he likes. And so he he's someone that's kind of adding a little bit to the conversation of whiskey. Is he making the whiskey? No. Is he tasting blends that might have already been put together for him? Absolutely. But he's getting involved as part of the process. And, you know, I think that's what people want, whether you're a fan uh, or whatever. I mean, celebrities are a sign of a healthy industry. I will say where I am concerned is that celebrities tend to be going to things that are easy. So there's a lot of rapid aging involved with the celebrity brands. And that's, I mean, hey, that's fine. You know, if that's what they want to do and they want to try that, I mean, that does not have the best track record for folks. But overall, I look at celebrities as just being a part of a successful industry. And that's just the way it is since... Since George Clooney made a big old billion dollars off of uh, selling it tequila, all the other celebrities wanted to get in the boat of uh, spirits. And the fact is, most of them lose money in it. Most of them do not have, um, you know, they come in thinking that their name's going to carry it through. But this is a hard industry to navigate. You got to muscle through the three-tier system. You got to convince retailers that your stuff is good. You got to convince consumers that it's good because unless your name is plastered all over the bottle, um, you know, your celebrity status doesn't mean crap to most people. And even then, when it's plastered over the bottle, it still doesn't mean crap. The whiskey has got to be good. So there's your answer. A random person in a liquor store that walked away after I thought your question was great. I read it here on Bourbon Pursuit. And if you would like to be like random person in a liquor store, you can hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and uh, let me know what your question is. If I like it like I did Rando here, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. 
And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome everybody back to part three of this series and we're talking about is bourbon broken? Kenny, Ryan, and Fred here today and we are going to be talking about this series and we had already talked about topics one and two but credit for the series on is bourbon broken goes to Brent Joseph who's a contributing writer for Bourbon and Bantered and in this four-part series we evaluated Brent's opinion piece on well, is bourbon broken? And our own commentary is we're going to kind of further expand on where we see bourbon trending. And in part three of Is Bourbon Broken series, we're going to talk about distribution and retail practices. Some real juicy stuff here. So in Brent's third article, he covers distribution and he pointed out that the three-tier system is likely to be accountable for a large part on why bourbon is broken. And unfortunately, there isn't much we can do about it. Local stores are forced to buy product that they don't want just so they can get a few bottles of what everyone wants. Consumers are at the mercy of the system and therefore there really isn't a way to fix it. Then we shift to the retailers. There are reward systems, playing favorites, lotteries, insane retail pricing, and even liquor store owners that sell their own bottles on secondary markets. And as Brent puts it, some handle it fairly, some handle it poorly, and some are just borderline criminal. So let's first start talking about the distribution side of things. You know, on this podcast, we've we've attacked and praised the three-tier system quite a bit of time on the show before. And as someone who's now on the spirits producer side for Ryan and I over here, we do see that there is a valuable role that they do play in getting your product to market and on store shelves as well. We thought we were going to be an online-only brand at the very beginning, and we pivot away from that pretty quickly. We had to start navigating the three-tier model. And we have great relationships with our distributors. However, the only gripe that I might have is that 25% margin. It probably makes sense to have that across the board for products that are hard to sell or they have to bring on and do a bunch of promotion for. But for brands that do sell easily, there's nothing more aggravating than just looking at it as just a mechanism of getting it on the shelf. And so, Ryan, I kind of want to push this to you a little bit. Now that we've been on the inside for a few years, do you think we should have been a, done a better job at negotiating rates with distributors? Do you think that's just a, a lost cause? Yeah, it's probably a lost cause. We don't have enough skin in the game to probably push our weight around. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, I've always said for bigger brands, there's they're definitely value in the distribution game because there's no way these big brands could have the set up all the logistics to get their product everywhere it needs to be. But for smaller brands who are just trying to get in like, in, in who already have their like kind of, fan base that they're trying to court audience yeah, yeah. you know that that they're just trying to get it on the product 
I, I don't see where that margin is justified, you know, I, and I could be totally wrong. We haven't seen all the behind the scenes work that goes into the distribution system, but, uh, the, the, there is some value, but it is definitely broken for smaller brands. And it would be nice to, you know, with us trying the online brand, if smaller brands could, you know, be able to do more shipping across state lines and all that, I think that would help open up and distribution could play a part in that. And, you know, maybe take a smaller piece of the cut, but right now they're not. And it's kind of like strangleholding smaller brands from kind of expanding their, their whole brands to, to the whole market that they could reach. And so it's kind of frustrating for the smaller brands. Yeah. I mean, we, we thought we were going to be online only, and we kind of had to make a pivot because we realized that there is this education gap that we can't can sit there and say, oh yeah, you, I mean, Ryan, how many times did somebody oh, yeah. say, we said, oh, we've got our bourbon. Like, where do I go and get it? And we're like, oh, this website. And they're like, no, nah, I'm good. And they're like, how do you spell that? <laughs> what? When, uh, is that just sealed? tell me when it's on shelves. Is that like, seal box with an X? And I'm like, y'all do it on Amazon for every damn thing in the world. Why can't you go and order your bottle? But yeah, there's, and there, and, and I think too, we devalue the experience going into the store and you know, finding the bottle and holding it in your hand, reading it on the shelves and researching about it. Uh, there, there is something tangible to that. And, uh, and there's a feeling that comes with that. So I think we discounted that too. Yeah. For and sure. also we wouldn't have been that, you know, in the bourbon game or any spirits game, you can't, if you want to be in the biggest States, there are no ship States, you know, like Texas and Georgia and, uh, Illinois, Illinois. Yeah. And so you, you can't really ship there. So if you're going to try to grow your brand and, really big markets, you got to really have that traditional distribution as well. Well, so a, a little thought for me on this is that whenever we talk about the three-tier system, I think it's really important to establish why it's here. Uh, so after, look, like most things in alcohol conversations from a regulation perspective, it all goes back to prohibition. You know, prior to prohibition, it was the Wild West, you know, you could do whatever. But prohibition came because our country drank far too much and people were passing out in puddles and drowning and so forth. When prohibition was repealed in uh, 1933, the federal government basically just got tired of the protests and hearing all the arguments of it. And they, and they essentially punted the decision on alcohol laws to the states. The only thing that they said was I mean they 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 had a a federal alcohol administration act so they did have a lot of say in it but when it came to the sale of alcohol they gave states the rights to basically make the decisions and the one thing that was established is that the supplier had to sell to a distributor who had to sell to a retailer uh, and that essentially became a a checks and balances for uh, the industry now there were a lot of issues going into, you know, leading all the way up to the 1960s, where distillers basically were not respecting the three-tier game, and they would get together and they would do things like price fixing. You all would not be able to exist as a small brand in the 1950s because all the big distillers would have gotten together with the distributors and muscled you outside of the shelf. You know, so today what you're seeing is you're actually seeing like a, a lot of acceptance within the three-tier system. It used to be really bad if you were a small independent. And, you know, one of, ironically, the person who was the biggest voice for the independent distillers and independent brand owners was Pappy Van Winkle. 
he testified before uh, the Senate talking about all these price fixing scandals that was was going on. And this was continually investigated. And now that we are seeing some things, some shenanigans happening into the three tier system, once again, you know, the government is looking into it. So the White House is one of the things that the Biden administration has wanted to take on was to find out if, you know, the sale of alcohol has, has been fair. And there's, of course, there's a lot of pushback on that. Uh, but uh, I always like to give that story because what is acceptable for the sale of alcohol in Utah and Oklahoma and Wyoming is very different than Washington, D.C. or Florida and New York. So every state is essentially is its own country. And it is such a pain in the ass, I got to imagine, from a brand perspective to navigate it all. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it affects you as well. I mean, I know you do private tastings and the, you know, the pandemic brought a lot of it out and you've got to figure out like, oh, like, do we make people go to the store and say, oh, go and buy these little airplane bottles or, hey, you can go to here and you can buy it. And then, oh, I'm sorry, you live in X state, you can't join. Like, it is frustrating just for anybody that's in this, in this business. I mean, whether you're a consumer, whether you're a retailer or whether you're a producer, I mean, Every state having all these different laws just presents challenges. And it would be so nice that if there was just some way that we could like everybody get on the same page. But the problem is, is that as you had mentioned, since all these states have their sort of all their own laws, that what's it all come back down to? It comes back down to collecting taxes mm, and they absolutely. all want to, they all want to yeah. collect taxes on it and they all have different rates and different things. Mm -hmm. And Kentucky might actually be one of the worst at it. Yeah. It's one of the highest in the... Uh... Thank God for that. The distributor, the di distributors, gosh, why can't I say that? Whatever distributors, uh, they uh, collect, they do take care of the tax work for us. And so I'm thankful for that. So thank you guys. It, it, there's also, there's also the element of the counties, you know, so the counties can pass particular taxes too. Uh, and the townships can and pass taxes. So there's, there's so many layers that come at you. If you are a producer from a consumer perspective, um, I just want to be able to walk into a store and buy what I what I want, and and I don't care about any of these other things that it takes to get there. And that is often uh, the attitude. So, the attitude is often is like the three tier system is bad. Why can't I get this? I, why I just want it shipped here? And I go back to something Max Shapiro always says. He's like, you know, we're not selling T shirts uh, or cupcakes. This is a regulated industry, and it's a regulated industry that when you go to make your case with with people that don't respect it or appreciate uh, fine alcohols, they just, uh, they just you know, snub their nose. It's like, well, you're just trying to get people drunk and they move on. And so, you know, you would, Congress for on most days would rather pass a bill about uh, lighthouse regulations than to soften the load of regulation so the consumers can have better access to good bourbon. And I, I, God, I have such a hard time accepting that. I understand it's regulated, but I look at it as saying, yeah, sure. They might not be t-shirts. What if they're t-shirts that say, you know, praise the devil, like they're devil worshiping t-shirts, but oh, those are okay. Like, I mean, is there, what's well, the first amendment protects you? First amendment protection. Wait, the only, I mean, the only amendment that we have is to, to repeal the, the actually, whole set act. Actually be, able to, <laughs> actually be able to drink. I know. I know. It, it's, it's just tough to be able to look at it and, and kind of put a. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, we're gonna keep that one in. Fred just spit his water everywhere. No. Actually, I blocked it. <laughs> I blocked it with my body. 
but you know, I'm thinking of, but I'm thinking of like, how do we keep a a very democratic view of this and how do we place Switzerland? And it is hard. It is hard. It's a, it's a regulated substance, but I always go back to my other argument that we see marijuana laws going further and faster and quicker than we do with regulation of alcohol only because the claws have been sunken so far. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of bureaucracy and, uh, you know, just buying or structures in place. It's, and I think that's about every system. I try to not tear down systems because they have been thought out for over, you know, whatever. We're at almost 100 years of, or over 100 years, for instance. I was about to say, you are talking about 1950s. So 60 <laughs> yeah. years, 60, 70 years later, we're still bitching and arguing about the three tiers. Yeah, and so the, yeah. it's a complicated issue with a lot of nuances and gray areas because you got to worry about minors. You got to worry about doors or stuff showing up at the doors that's not supposed to and uh, tax, collect tax collecting and all. It's such a complicated system that it's hard to say like, well we need this blanket appeal for everything. So it's a little bit more nuanced. Well, and also, and, and so that's just the distributor side. I mean, look at it from, uh, and this is one where the the zoning processes in the towns can make a big difference. Like in in certain cities, they will not allow two liquor stores to be too close together, you know? So there's, or they won't allow a liquor store to be near a school or a church. So there's all of these, there's so many people who have a say on what is uh, allowed for alcohol that before you know you know the the ultimate question here that we're talking about here is is the three-tier system making uh bourbon broken i i would say everything we're talking about here is we're actually talking about a system and we haven't even gotten to the point of like you know can we get uh, i don't know just a regular bottle of woodford reserve double oak in a particular market. And and I think that says something for the situation is the three-tier system arguably is not why uh, bourbon is is broken in this discussion. Yeah. It, it is more of like, this is a nuanced uh, beast with a lot of people who have too much too much say in, uh, in the sale of alcohol that really don't give two shits about it. Well, and I'm sure the part about being broken is they're talking about allocated items and how they're you know distributed and whatnot and and for the most part i think the three tier system works you know there's not a time where you can't go get elijah craig in, in any state or any you know that's buffalo trace is a different thing you know they got i still can't wrap my head around like they're like the, the whole thing that goes well all you that, can all you can say about buffalo trace is they're making products that people want exactly yeah and and that is in the way that they have developed it i've always said that you know what if uh beam suntory decided to do something the equivalent of the um of the antique collection they're they're a brand they could pull that off i mean so could heaven hill but none of those brands none of those distillers do that they do one-offs of very great products and that's there's nothing wrong with that but the way that Buffalo Trace has built their uh, built their system, they they tee off on limited edition and scarcity, and they do a really good job of it to move their entire portfolio. Whether that's wrong or right, hey, that's a discussion to have. But they're doing it well, and that's what when anyone ever talks about allocated products, I'm not talking about Little Book. You know, they're they're very, sometimes they bring it up, but very rarely does Four Roses limited edition small batch come up. Uh, it's always Buffalo Trace products. So to your point, Ryan, the three-tier system is really working well for uh, most of the Heaven Hill and Beam and Four Roses and Wild Turkey products out there. 
Yeah. And and you just kind of teed up my next thing I was talking about, because really this does, it, it comes down to allocated items and people on retail stores, they say they have to buy a bunch of one product in a portfolio that doesn't sell well, so they can get a few items of bottles that do sell well, a la Fireball. So this kind of gives me a split feeling here. You know, we talk about being loyal to retail stores and being a good customer. So you get those bottles. So how do you reward stores from a distributor perspective without making them take on a bunch of inventory that doesn't move? Because I know me, I'll go buy beer and wine and all this other kind of stuff just to get one bottle of bourbon a year for myself. Being on the retail side, you've got to amplify that 60X to be able to, you know, have inventory, but to be able to kind of get a lot of the stuff and some of the stuff just might sit on the shelves. So is there a good reward system or is it kind of the same exact thing that it, you just got to be loyal and to kind of further along with that, how do you figure out big box versus mom and pop? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to un- unfold there. Yeah. What, what was the first point? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, it, it makes me think about it, And that's why, you know, a lot of people have been come disgruntled with barrel picks because a lot of the distilleries have said, we're not going to deal with it. We're going to put it in our distributors' hands because they're the ones, you know, pushing the product and making the relationships and they can decide who gets barrel picks or, you know, allocated products or whatever. And so right now, I mean, most of them are, you know, the the big volume stores are getting all the barrel picks, you know, your Total Wines of the World, Liquor Barns. Uh, the the know, distilleries you know, can kind of wipe their hands clean. All right. They're like, like, it's you know, out of our hands. It's out of our hands. Don't yell at us, you know, go, go bang on Republic Store or whoever. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, it's tough because it is a business, you know, and you do kind of have to reward, you know, the most volume because they're paying your bills and they're doing, but it's hard because a lot of those small mom and pop stores, they kind of hung their hat on like, okay, we're a bourbon focused store, you know, we're, we're one of the first ones, you know, somebody like Julio's or Toddy's or someone like that, uh, or Julio's, however you say it. And they're like, we're the ones that kind of got you here, you know, why are you forgetting us now? And so... I don't know. Maybe Fred's got a better answer than. Well, I was gonna. I have a. Um, I did a story on this for Whiskey Advocate. I want to say in 2015, 2016. I'm trying to pull up a quote that Joe Beatrice had that I thought was the best quote I've ever seen approaching it, and I can't. I mean, it's like a four thousand word story, so I can't. I can't find it easily. But I'll just kind of put it in. Uh, don't do a four thousand word quote. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't. I, a 4, I won't. Word I won't quote. follow. Those those were the good old days when when I wrote a four thousand word story and people read it. But I don't think anybody reads more than five hundred words anymore uh, at a time. Put in a three minute YouTube clip. That's what I can consume. Now. That's exactly. I mean, that's why I'm on YouTube now. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, you know, his point was he has to to make a decision of like uh, I think he called it. Uh, uh, some kind of top sales down strategy. He's like, you you have to reward the people that are buying, you know, your product. And and this was when Joe's you know b- barrel bourbon is probably four times the size it was back then. But you know, in our circles, it was catching steam, and people wanted the uh, the new release that was coming out. And he was fresh off of winning best bourbon at San Francisco, so there was a lot of attention around him. And the thing that he said is like, you have to reward the people, kind of like we always say, that brought you to the dance. And what happens when more, that that dance gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and you have to, um, you know, as a company, you have to make a decision, you know, are you rewarding people who are buying a boatload now, 
or are you rewarding the one that was there with you all the time? They're still spending about the same amount of money. That is the most difficult thing. And I believe in rewarding loyalty. I mean, if, if it was me making the decision, I would be rewarding loyalty. And so I would, and I would be looking at uh, the bars that are really important. I'd be looking at, uh, you know, key accounts where key people go to and everything like that. But it's, it is not a good uh, scenario. You know, it's not, it's not easy. It's uh, not. And I can't imagine like any other business, it would be any different. Yeah. It's like, it's like, what's the best long-term solution? Okay. I get people that are diehard whiskey fans that have brought me here or do I want to get more whiskey fans, you know, and get it out to more people to enjoy it. And it's like, it's a moral quandary, I guess, that, uh, you know, we live in. When yeah, and if you don't, and, and if you don't capture like the 25 year old drinker now, um, you won't have them. You know, yeah, you won't, you won't have that person. So it's a, it's a very real, it's a very different world than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago was, was crazy. You know, I was the beginning of crazy. And, um, I, I think I'm very eager to see what happens with, uh, with the, with the government oversight. It's because the government, when they do something like this, at this, at this level, at the white house, the last, the last president to do something like this at this level was Reagan. And he tried to deregulate uh, the industry in the early 1980s. The alcohol industry ended up blocking him, but he just defunded it to the point where there's no longer uh, you know, guards at warehouses. They got rid of the tax stamps because they couldn't justify $15 million a year on tax stamps. So you know, when the, when the federal government takes this kind of a look at, at the alcohol industry, Big changes happen, so it's a, and you're talking about billions of dollars in both in revenue and in taxes. So I just, I'm just really eager to see what happens here. Right. So Ryan, speaking of moral conjuries here, I got another one here for you. So oh boy. alcohol distribution is a $30 billion per year business, and they have a lot of resources. They want to protect and resist a lot of changes because they do have lobbyists, they've got lawmakers, and they're lining the pockets of our state's representatives. So back in February 2021, a report came out from War Communications called Politics Under the Influence. And in there, it said that $40 million was spent on political campaign contributions and lobbying from 2018 to 2020 by wholesalers, where only $17 million was actually spent by wineries, distilleries, breweries, and retailers combined. So the largest recipient of wholesale contributions went to Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick, the governor and lieutenant governor of Texas, for a combined $1.2 million. So when you hear this data, do you feel that wholesalers and even your elected representatives, to an extent, are really working to benefit us and the consumers? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, 
transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Do you feel that wholesalers and even your elected representatives, to an extent, are really working to benefit us and the consumers? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean that's politics. They're everyone's trying to put their stake in the ground and protect their own, you know, their own territory. And uh, you see it in every industry, you know, that's regulated. They're, you know, like energy and automobiles. You know, any technology. It's all everybody's trying to hang on to what they they they've created. But uh, yeah, it's it's that's a lot of money i didn't realize yeah it really is right i mean 40 million dollars from wholesalers went to state representatives yeah but uh, on the other side of that too that's like you got you know i think fred's talked about this there's a lot of people that are employed and you know benefit from the distribution side of the business and so there's a lot of jobs to be protected and a lot of things to be saved so uh, you know i can see both sides of it and the way texas is you know they're abc I mean, they're they're probably the closest thing to like a legitimate uh, law enforcement in the alcohol industry. Like they will, you you break those laws, you might get up in cuffs. You know, they take their job very seriously. I uh, akin them to the fish and wildlife uh, officers that you come across. And if anyone who here is a fisherman, you know, if you catch the wrong fish, you don't throw it back in, your ass is in big trouble. That's kind of how the Texas ABC is. So you don't mess with them. On the legal side, you don't mess with Michigan. You know, Michigan will will sue you. I mean, there's, uh, every they, state they is, sued a bunch of retailers recently. Yeah, yeah Michigan yeah. sued a bunch of retailers. Uh, so th- these states, I mean, they take it seriously because that's their that's their pie. You know, it's their revenue. And, but at the end of the day, you know, one point two million dollars. You said, Kenny, that's uh, to, just to, to lieutenant and the, the governor yeah, of Texas. Yeah, that's still like a pimple. And compared to like what big tech is spending in, in in Texas, the oil man, you know, you know, it's been a kajillions over there. So um, when when alcohol bills come up, you know, these important people, they're just going to go down their list of people real quick. Like, you know, an alcohol bill is going to come up, in, for example, in the state of Kentucky, it will only come up once a year because it's kind of like a, a joint agreement that they would only uh, discuss one alcohol bill a year. And so like when these things come up, they're all just looking at through the people who, you know, they need to take care of and they're going to vote based on that. And that's our system, you know, and that, and we're going down a different rabbit hole, but you know, if you want to really talk about it, like the three tier system is a part of the political system and the, the political system, I think we can all agree to is broken. And a side effect is, you know, you could argue that the three tier system's broken, but yeah, but there is a lot of effort to keep things the way they are. And I think everything can exist as the way it is, but there has to be 
there has to be some like understanding of what the world is. It is no longer 1965, and there are really good ways to implement a three-tier system with the way things are now. Now, yeah. how, how things are getting distributed, uh, the supplier to the distributor, that's a very different conversation. And they're, they're, uh, in addition to the White House moving on something, uh, there's a representative in the state of Minnesota uh, who is pursuing an equal rights clause in their alcohol legislation that says that like that mom and pop has an equal right to that bottle as total wine. And like you have to figure it out, distributor. So there, there is action coming in in state legislation as well as uh, the federal look. So obviously this is, this is on people's minds because uh, so many people feel they have been damaged because they can't get particular bottles. I guess I just can't understand why they're so against this whole shipping thing. Like, it seems like everybody could win. They could make a system where everybody could win, you know, where they're still getting their tax revenue, still getting, and you're creating another industry of shipping mm-hmm. the bottles. You know, you're helping another industry, more jobs, you know, whatever. But I, I, I just can't. Yeah, there, I, I, get, I, I would say Drizzly was their answer, was their best answer. And they owned a piece of Drizzly, um, you know, so the wholesalers owned I mean, Drizzly. And the pandemic, they had to adapt. There's really, there's no other way for people to get their goods. Yeah, but and you, so they're sitting on millions and millions of dollars and they had to figure out a way to do that. So they had to adapt. And this is the, and I, God, I go back to it all every single time is that every single industry gets shaken by technology and it, the liquor industry has held on for too long. And the pandemic is what made it happen that they had to finally start adapting to online ordering and purchasing and getting comfortable with that sort of scenario. Yeah. I mean, in Kentucky, you've seen like more advancement, but in some states you see them rolling back those laws, you know, where they're going back to before that. And it's like, well, what now? What, what the hell? You know, it's like, I thought this was the catalyst to kind of push us the ball forward, you know, but some, some people are just digging back in and. Well, and, and here's one of the reasons why they're digging back in um, is we are starting to see a lot of scams happen. And, you know, people creating fake Instagram accounts, people creating fake Facebook accounts, fake websites. And, you know, an argument from the three-tier system proponent is going to say, well, you know what, if we had, if we would kept things in check, this would have never popped up because it would never, no one would have ever thought that they could buy it like that. And so there's some really good uh, arguments to be made to kind of keep things the way they are. But I just, I just don't think they're realistic and everything that's popping up that they, you know, they could say that the three-tier system could be, we have other mechanisms that could knock down the scam artists. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, like you said, it's a different world. You got in 1960 to now, I mean, your drinking population is probably what, seven X times, you know, the, the amount of people that were back then. And it's just like, there's so much more demand, so much more people and, and so much more advancement technology like that. It seems like, yeah, just, we got to make s- not that we have to break down or tear down the entire system, but, you know, it's like, how can we make some incremental changes to, like, embrace it all towards a win-win for everyone? Right. Yeah. And to going back to my earlier point, like, I wanted to throw out those numbers out there because I don't think people realized how much money was actually spent by wholesalers and going into political campaigns and contributions that might actually adversely affect the way that you access your bourbon. So Kenny, when you run for office, are you going to accept money from the wholesalers? Only through Venmo, so it can't be tracked. <laughs> <laughs> or Bitcoin, one or the other. One or the yeah. Other. Uh, but I do kind of want to move on to retail a little bit because this is where it gets a little tricky. And we know that there's no good way to handle allocated releases. In fact, reward systems 
taking care of your best customers, lotteries, and randomly putting out bottles are great ways to build some store loyalty. But I do want to kind of talk about the shady business practices we do see. And this is kind of targeted to those stores that sell way above SRP for every single limited release. So put yourself in their shoes for a second. Do you think that it's fair that they own the product and that they're able to charge whatever they want? Yes, I do. Uh, And I think it's just a supply and demand issue. And if to me, it falls back on if that's what the market wants and the market dictates on pricing, you know, on the secondary side, it's like, well, why would a liquor store let somebody who doesn't isn't in the liquor business, doesn't take all that risk, doesn't have the storefront, doesn't have all the liability, doesn't pay the state taxes where they can go and just sell it on the secondary market. And so I feel like they should have the ability to sell it at whatever market price the market will dictate because people say, okay, you're, you're pricing it too high, but what about the stores that price it too low? Like they'll take losses on Jim Beam, Maker's Mark and all these other house brands or beers. And then they're just getting you in the store with loss leaders. So it's, you know, it's twofold, you know? And the funny thing is, is that I don't think either one's wrong, but and, that one's illegal. Like you're not supposed to sell below like a uh, wholesale cost. And these big chains have lawyers on retainer uh, instead of having like, um, you know, advertising budgets, they have legal budgets and they just like, they just deal with that as it comes. And they, but it, you're right. They just get people in the door. Uh, they stock up on their private, you know, their private labels and that's where they make their money. And it's a, in the grand scheme of things of the liquor store business, the jacked up bottles of bourbon is such a such a small thing with all the issues that go on. Yeah. Most uh, of them are just trying to sell tons of vodka and cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're like there there's a race to get that uh seven to nine AM, you know, drinker who's gonna buy a fifth of vodka and drink it in the parking lot and go to work. I hate to say it. That's but the reality though. That's the truth of the matter. And that's why when, you know, when we when there were shutdowns during the pandemic you know, they looked at alcohol, uh, alcohol-related companies as a central business because you know if those people don't have their drink in the morning, you know the hospitals would be overloaded with like brain collapses, like the the whole you know withdrawal syndrome from alcohol. It's a very very nasty thing. But um, you know the, the marked up bottles. I mean, if you are in business and you are doing that and you have it on display. And you haven't seen the negative reaction from people, then I just I'm sorry, but I don't think you're a very good business person. Now, selling it for those amounts, that's on you. That's a business decision. But to advertise it, and if you don't see the negative reaction that people get, and I'm telling you, you you would have to live in a in a insulated cave to not see that negative publicity. I mean, it's on social media. Um, you know, we text it to one another. You've got articles coming out on it all the time. I mean, there is such thing as bad press. And you don't want to be attached as one of those people who are selling something for 3,000% over SRP. And then you have the websites, you know, that are doing it. And, you know, they, you talk to them, we're like, well, we're actually just doing that for the people who can't get it. We're a convenience model. And it's like, okay, you know. And it just it just kind of goes on and on. I mean, I hate it. I, I think. Hate the, it. I guess guess would you feel like on like a watch, for example, would you know a, a fine antique watch? You know, 
is a jeweler who has a rare watch are they seen the same way as like a liquor store is on well, you know, on bourbon let's take that a little He's different watch so, so watches yeah. watches a little different especially you're talking about vintage or antique that has been restored or something i mean that's nothing that you get from somewhere if you go and you have an omega wholesaler you've got a um mont blanc or anybody like that like odds are they are selling and they've got inventory like <laughs> it's not like omegas are just like flying off they just can't keep it in stock or anything like that that's a little bit different because they can set the price based on what you know they charge over wholesale and, and everything like that but most of the time yeah you're going to find varying costs around the country of what a, what this watch is going to cost i think my hang up with this is that as a consumer I have no other ability to get that bottle of bourbon except through a retail store. Right. And that's why I am always pro the distillery to be able to sell whatever they want because they can control everything from top to bottom. And they don't have to deal with the backlash of bad stores or crazy percentages that are getting marked up. And instead, they can recognize those profits. But again, I think that's just my hang up is that as a consumer, I have no ability to get it. Like the three tier system does not allow me to buy that bottle direct from a manufacturer unless, you know, kind of goes through the gift shop model. But that's, what you're that's, saying. that's the thing that, that kind of, that I don't like about it. And as Fred said, yes, I don't understand how people, they charge $2,000 for a bottle of E.H. Taylor and they're like, oh yeah, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, God, I heard a story about somebody who was trying to sell the new Basil Hayden toast for a thousand dollars a bottle saying that it's more rare than pappy because you, you're only going to see this one time i mean that's the shit that i can't stand i guess I, I i guess i just try to think of other like luxury goods and it's hard for me to say you can you have to set a price ceiling on a luxury good it's not something that's necessity it's not mm. something it's not like gas or sanitizer or you know cough medicine or whatever you know all through the pandemic people are price gouging on it's a it's a luxury good so Yes, as a consumer, I hate it, but I can't like say, yes, you need to have a price ceiling on products. If if they're not selling, then that's on the retailer. But if they are, then why is it wrong for him to do that? I don't know. You know, it's a good um, a good comparison. A couple of good comparisons uh, would be like custom saddles, like in the, in the horse business. You know, you'll have like 50 made and like those things will there'll be a fluctuation of those 50s being sold. Um, also, country hams. You know, we all have a familiarity yes. and, a, and a love for country hams. And I've had country hams that were not really good name brands, but every bit as good as like a Kearns or something like that that you you see everywhere and, and are very, you know, costly. I think when you look at luxury brands, you have to look at like, what the supplier is able to do. And then all the other suppliers, whatever it is, they can dictate to the retailer what they can sell it as. Like Apple, you try and sell Apple over what they tell you to, Apple's coming after you and you you will no longer be a store, a certified Apple store. Uh, they can't do that in the alcohol business. You know, the alcohol business, you know, the laws are very, you know, stated that the retailer has final say in what they sell it as. And they, the, the supplier can never dictate and the distributor can never dictate. Now they may be able to say, "Well, you sold it for too much. Uh, we're going to limit this next time." But they can't, you know, dictate what um, what something should be sold as. So, you know, so that is a that's a question of like, are people pricing it properly? To me, 
it is there's been greater fallout for the brands when they have attempted to increase SRP. Uh, ergo, bookers, you know, when they try to go to like a hundred bucks and then dropped it down to sixty. You know, there's there's greater fallout for the distillers to do that than just to kind of like you know inch up their pricing just a little bit here and there. Uh, you know, Heaven Hills is another good example with the uh, seven year old bottle and bond. You know, they cut the six year old, re release it as a forty dollar bourbon. You know, half of us were pissed off. The other half were like, "All right, it's great." You know, <laughs> a new so, label. Let's do it. Uh, so, I mean, it's it is what it is. But I will say this: I judge a retailer more by how they mark up Wild Turkey One Hundred One and Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. You know, so an everyday product. Yeah, and, I, I can agree with that. That and, that's what's the annoying thing is yeah. like the Wellers are getting marked up and the you know the. Well, Every, 107 for a hundred dollars. Elijah Craig barrel yeah. proofs or the regular, not regular stuff, but it's not like the Pappies or the Antiques or the Willets or, you know, it's, it's yeah. the regular everyday bottles that it, that's really annoying. Yeah. And I, I look at this as well as like, if you look at control states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, they have their margins. They're still making money, but somehow if you try to apply this across the board, nobody's be happy making a set margin everywhere. But I also look at this as retailers, they like to play the victim game all the time and saying, I've got to carry all this stuff so I can get this few things I want. I don't understand why they just don't push back and say, fine, I'm just not going to carry it. You know, dealing with allocated bourbon is a hard enough business as it is. Why don't they just say like, I'll just carry what I want, what I know it sells. I find it hard to complain about carrying fireball because that shit sells like, (laughs) like hotcakes. I mean, that's... I mean, that yeah. stuff sells itself, but, yeah. uh, but I, but I have heard, you know, you have to carry, you know, not just brands portfolios, but like the whole distribution portfolio. So mm-hmm. you got to buy wines and this and that, and that's, that just doesn't seem right to me. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know how you fix that. And you, you hear from people know that that really doesn't go on. That's just people whining and making stuff up. And then you hear it's like, yes, it does go on. So I'm not educated enough to probably have an opinion on that, but. No, I think that's very valuable opinion. Yeah. I mean, when I look at it, I I would I would think as as a retailer, I would say, okay, I'm gonna look at my top 15, 20 products and I'm gonna build my business around that. I know what sells, I know what's gonna be the hot sellers, and I can I can kind of slide in my things that I, I upsell or I combine with or anything like that. And you had mentioned right at the very top, I started my business, I was a, a bourbon store, like that's what I wanted to be cool. Well, you know, you can try and get what you can get, but I think you have to make the pivot like Ryan over at Maloney from Julio's. He says, well, yeah, now that we don't get barrel picks to four roses anymore, I look at barrel picks from everywhere else. I look at brands that aren't on the radar for everyone. And I try to find new ways to kind of introduce my consumers to different brands and stuff like that now. Yeah. Or do like Armagnac or different spirits or something. Yeah. You've got to figure out some way to do that. Yeah. So uh, one question, kind of last one I'll throw at you guys is, let's talk about the future. Should distributors and retailers be a little bit scared with what we see and how, you know, we've seen direct-to-consumer shipping, we've seen Drizzly, we know Amazon's trying to try to get in the game. Don't forget Walmart. Walmart, I mean, you name it. Go Puff. Everybody. things up. Everybody's trying to get into it. So what is, Mm -hmm. what is, I mean, how should they be scared and and what do you all kind of think this is going to look like? Uh, I don't know that they should be scared. I think they should be embracing and trying to, you know, it's innovate or die. And it's like, I think they should be like looking at 2020 and like, okay, what worked in 2020 and how can we capitalize on that? You know, 
clearly it disrupted our system and our whole thing, our whole way of living. And, you know, it's how can we embrace that and, and implement it in our business moving forward? Um, I'm sure some will still just try to stick their feet in the ground and claim their stake on what they're doing. But, you know, there, there's still just going to be a place, I think, even though you're going to have Amazon, all this distribution, like I said in the beginning, there is something valuable about going to a store and going in there and picking out what you want or just, I don't know, or some, like I enjoy going to the liquor store. Like my wife wants wine. I'm like, I'll go get it because I like going in there, just scouting out what's new, what's going on, you know, what's new who's brands. Who's got fun label this time? Yeah, who's got single barrel picks? You know, it's, it's, right. it, it just doesn't excite me to go on a website and be like, oh, what do they got on there today? You know, I'm going to scroll through, you know, I'm just not a, I'm not an online shopper per se. Like I hate buying clothes online because they show up and they don't fit and then I got to take it back to the store and I'm lazy and I don't like doing that. So, you know, I, I like going... I like going to the store and having something tangible, but there are things too that I can't get in my state that I would like to be able to have access to to ship me to. So it's like, how can you make both system work for both for for both people? Well, to to answer your question, Kenny, if the industry does not collaborate and work together to fix this, they're not going to see their greatest enemy uh, flanking them, which is constantly happening right now, and that's the. Uh, the health advocates, the health zealots uh, that are trying to get cancer labels on bottles or trying to push through like really bad science talking about like if, you, if you're near a bottle of alcohol, you're going to have, you know, 15 forms of cancer. And look, there's no credible data that says if you drink five drinks a day for 30 years that you're going to be one healthy fella. That's, there's nothing out there like that. But there are studies that talk about moderation. And, uh, you know, I see all of these conversations from the industry and all this money being spent uh, from the industry to, to talk about, you know, protecting an, an antiquated system instead of improving it. And I'm like, these are efforts that could be going to something else. They could, they could actually be going to uh, curb alcoholism or curb uh, underage drinking. But instead, uh, you're focusing on, you know, paying off the governor of Texas to the make block sure, shipping. yeah, to, to to do things like that, and and like they will come back and say, well, that's what this whole model is designed for. And really, if that's the case, then let down your guard on shipping and find a way to tax things coming into your state, so the state still gets the tax. And that's all you got to do. You pass that uh, that dollar forward to the consumer; they'd be willing to do it, guarantee it. But uh, I just I just think that. You know, in the art of war, divide and conquer means you you divide your you divide your enemy, so they're easier to defeat. It's not like you divide up a project and you go do it. You divide you divide your enemy, and I feel like the alcohol industry is always divided. You know, wine and beer um, don't work with spirits to get legislation passed. They fight each other over like minuscule things and like tax dollars. And you know, there is a rise of people that want a different form of prohibition. And that's going to come if the alcohol industry is not ready for it. I think you both had really good points. And I feel that they have to do something to embrace the change. And I always go back to saying technology is going to disrupt every single industry. And people, and it's, <laughs> take a line out of Jurassic Park, life will find a way. People will find a way to get what they want. Whether you approve it or disprove it, whether it's illegal or legal, they will get what they want. Secondary markets still thrive and exist. Granted, not as great as it was, you know, two, three years ago, but they're still there. They're not going to go away and they're going to continue to flourish if you don't do anything about it. 
you would think with the secondary markets kind of being, you know, there's a hammer that kind of dissipated. People are still lining up days before releases. It's not slowing down. People are still doing the same exact thing. Yeah. So they've got to figure out a way to make this easier for the American people to grasp, make the, make it easier for all the consumers everywhere. But I think that's, uh, that's going to wrap up this episode. So make sure you stay tuned for part four when we revisit the consumer problem again. But with that, cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you all next week. Vodka sucks. Toodles.